Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Hussein Khalid, and I'm a cardiology fellow at the University of Florida and a Cardio Nerds Academy fellow in House Thomas. I'm passionate about medical education and cardiovascular imaging. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to join us for this deep dive into nuclear and complementary multimodality imaging series. The stage is set in the days of Odysseus, where we are meeting interesting characters while learning about several important uses of multimodality cardiovascular imaging, one episode at a time over a seven-episode series. In each episode, we first learn about the value of nuclear imaging and then contrast with other relevant modalities like echocardiography, CT, and CMR. We learn from Cleveland Clinic imaging expert Dr. Wael Jaber and future imager Dr. Erica Hutt, as well as Brigham Imaging Fellow Dr. Aldo Schenoni. In the first episode, we discuss coronary ischemia using nuclear myocardial perfusion imaging with SPECT and PET, as well as other non-invasive testing like stress testing with ECHO and CMR and coronary CTA. Stay tuned for future episodes where we cover coronary microvascular disease, myocardial viability testing, anomalous coronary anatomies, cardiac sarcoidosis, cardiac amyloidosis, and prosthetic valve infections. And folks, for the first time ever, we are so proud to be offering CME credit. Just follow the link in the episode description. The speakers have no relevant disclosures, and there is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Welcome back, everyone. It's time for Cardioners to go nuclear with today's discussion about the multitude of clinical utilities of nuclear cardiovascular imaging within the broader context of multimodality imaging. We are just so thrilled to be joined by our imaging nerds, colleagues, Drs. Erica Hutt, Aldo Schinoni, and Wild Jaber. Erica, it gives me so much joy to have you back on. Our audience will remember you from our Cleveland Clinic CNCR episode or episode number 76 on our patient with spontaneous pap rupture related to vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So for everyone, Erica was born and raised in Costa Rica, where she received her medical degree from Universidad de Costa Rica. She trained in internal medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, where fortunately for us, she couples matched to stay here for cardiology along with Mr. Dr. Erica Hutt, a.k.a. Jose Aguilera, truly a power couple. Erica will be staying here for Cardiovascular Imaging Fellowship. And beyond being a clinical and a research powerhouse, Erica is just a leader within the program as her class's fellow representative. Erica, thanks for joining us. Hi, Ahmed, and it's a pleasure to be back. Thank you for that very kind introduction. And I got to say that it's thanks to my mentors, family, and friends that I'm where I am today. And I'm more than excited to introduce one of those individuals, Aldo Schenone. Aldo is a cardiovascular imaging fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He obtained his medical degree from Universidad de Carabobo in Venezuela and completed his internal medicine residency, including a chief year at Cleveland Clinic. 
and then moved on to cardiovascular fellowship at this same institution. Aldo is not only a superb clinician and a researcher, but also an exceptional mentor and a friend. And I actually met Aldo during my interview at CCF when he was a chief, and I, I blame him for recruiting me and six more Latin Americans to my residency class, all of which actually became very close friends and one, my husband. So thank you, Aldo, for guiding my steps and really molding my future. So Erica, thank you for those kind words. We have great times back in the clinic, both in internal medicine and work hard to try, you know, to recruit you to the clinic. So I'm very happy that's the case and that you're following through the path of, of imaging. So in Amit, thank you for the invitation. This is a great session and we were looking forward to do this for some time. So it's my true pressure to actually introduce uh, Dr. Wal Javer. Dr. Javer is an attending cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. He's the director of the Nurka Lab and a director of the core lab for the Cleveland Clinic. But beyond that, Dr. Jever is, is, is a friend, is a father to me, is a person who has been all the way through my journey in cardiology and now cardiac imaging and I have no, no words to express how, how grateful I am to have him in my life. We call him El Jefe just as a way to show him respect and gratitude and show him how we like him. Hey, Aldo, thank you so much for these uh, kind uh, words. And uh, thank you, Amit, for having us this show. And Erica, it's like basically there's no better time to spend your Saturday than this, except, of course, watching uh, Barca plays football. But again, it's, <laughs> you know, you look at these uh, at, at yourself and you hear with these words and you think of yourself. Thank you, Aldo, for making me feel old. Respect only comes with age. And thank you guys all for not only keeping us always up to date, but inspiring us. And uh, Amit, this uh, podcast that you started shows, again, how you can change the way we, we actually learn in medicine and cardiology from an up-down, top-down way of delivering information where everybody is waiting for the people with gray hair sitting in uh, beautiful offices and universities telling us what to do and waiting for them to come out with a verdict every four or five years and guidelines versus you taking this down to the level of practicing and cardiologists who are actually in training or early in their career and disseminating the information because you can reflect and shine the light on the most important issues you guys face every day in clinics and in the hospital, on the floors, globally with the current uh, pandemic. And then you can also actually uh, transcend all these rigid structures we developed over the past maybe thousands of years in cardiology and make these structures very loose and very democratic. So thank you so much for that. And there is no better person, actually, to reflect this new method or way of learning than Erica. Erica is ama an amazing person, an amazing human being, an amazing physician. And I, for the three of you and all the fellows that I've had in my life over the past uh, 22 years I've been at the Cleveland Clinic, it's, it's such a pleasure to spend uh, Saturday afternoon with you. This is such a special episode and recording for all of us. And I think that comes across for the audience. You know, for everyone here at the clinic, the fellows choose a faculty mentor with whom to spend uh, all of their continuity clinic time in for the latter two years of their training. And for most faculty, they really end up becoming your mentors and, and teachers and guides and advocates. I remember asking Eldo when I was, it was about time for me to choose my clinic faculty. And Eldo was with Dr. Jaber at the time. And I remember so clearly how Eldo spoke of uh, Hefe. He said, Amit, look, there, there's one thing to have a clinic faculty, and it's uh, entirely another to have someone who's a mentor. And like uh, he said earlier, somebody who's just a, a father, a friend, and all of the above. Spending clinic with Hefe, I've learned, yeah, sure, how to approach the patient with aortic stenosis, but 
I've also just learned how to, you know, you know, just talk to patients, get to know them. You know, Hefe's got the best bedside manner I've ever seen. He can talk to the patients about anything, whether it's the latest article in New York Times or experiences bungee jumping in Australia. Uh, you know, he's he's taught me where to buy my shoes, uh, what kind of exercise to do, riding bicycles to work. It's just a, it's such a an incredible experience. I'm so lucky. We're all so lucky to know you, Hefe. And as a testament to you as an educator, you always join us in our new conferences and morning reports, but you're not just teaching us, you're teaching the world with this incredible, invaluable resource uh, you and Dr. Jamelli have created, Cardiac Imaging Agora. Uh, would you mind telling our audience about it? Uh, thank you so much again. It's just, I think Aldo told you that while we were sitting, uh, I think in my house, at my house drinking rum and probably, you know, his judgment was suspect. But so we, again, we, we took the, uh, the COVID-19 unfortunate pandemic as an opportunity. And again, inspired by one of, of our fellows who was supposed to start a nuclear rotation in, in March. Uh, so Nicole was supposed to start nuclear rotation in March this year, and she could not, of course, be with us in the same room to do that because of the social distancing and isolation the hospital imposed. So I was sitting in my office thinking how we can deliver this information to her. I spoke to a colleague and a very dear friend of mine in, in Pisa, Italy, and she was facing the same problem because in Italy, remember, they had that wave first of, of corona hit them. And she said, why don't we start something simple, which basically introduction to some very informal, very rough videos to introduce cardiology fellows and the community to nuclear cardiology. And that's how we did it. Actually, I did the first five or six videos, I think, just to in a 10 to 20 minute sessions to introduce Nicole, who was supposed to rotate with us uh, to the concepts and just simple cases, normal, abnormal, different ischemias for different areas of infarct. And that's how the whole concept started. And fortunately, we with some help from uh, Alessia and uh, her fr- family in Italy, we were able to put the stuff on YouTube. And in very few short months, we had maybe 60 or 70 uh, sessions online with over eleven or 12,000 uh, views and downloads. So I hope this is helping. Again, this is an opportunity that came out of a crisis. We're not as professional as you guys in Cardio Nerds. Your, your podcasts are impeccable and they should be actually part of the maybe NPR or public radio sessions, you have the NPR voice, uh, demeanor, calm demeanor, and professionalism. So congratulations. Thanks for that, uh, Hefe. And I know personally friends near and far who've gained so much from Cardiac Imaging Agora. And folks, definitely check it out. We'll have the links in the episode notes. But on that note, let's get nuclear. But first, let's set the stage. It's around the year 1180 B.C., The decade-long Trojan War has come to a bloody end, and Troy has fallen. Our hero, Odysseus, proud that his Trojan horse ended the war, headed back home to his wife, Penelope, and son, Telemachus. However, in his absence, Penelope is being harassed by a slew of unrelenting suitors. Among them are the arrogant Antinous and the deceitful Eremachus. But here's where we depart from Homer's poem, and get into the Cardiner's adaptation, which is just as epic. As the competition grew and tensions rose, Antinous and Eremachus began noticing exertional angina and progressive dyspnea. Estimating an intermediate pretest probability for coronary disease, their physician, a predecessor to Hippocrates, considers obtaining a stress test. Setting aside the temporal dissonance of this story, we have a few modalities for non-invasive stress testing to choose from. 
we must choose first a stressor, either exercise or a pharmacologic stressor. And secondly, we choose how to objectively assess coronary perfusion, either via EKG alone or EKG plus imaging modality. Hefe, can you walk us through the use of nuclear myocardial perfusion imaging? Well, this is a very good story, but I, uh, I miss the age of these, of these ancient patients, which will factor a lot into the pretest likelihood of disease. Uh, so if we start with the first, the most important thing that you put on, which is uh, if you move a little bit uh, from 3,000 years ago to the little bit of more of a current era and apply the Bayesian analysis to this uh, thing with the Swiss monk who introduced us to that concept about pretest likelihood of disease. And let's assume that these individuals have an intermediate pretest likelihood of disease. My favorite stress modality, of course, is, is exercise. There is a lot you can miss by not applying this modality. So as far as uh, if I have to have a multiple choice, exercise comes first. If the patient can exercise and assume these are Greek heroes who can uh, still walk and didn't have SUVs back then. So hopefully they can do that. Uh, They don't shop uh, online. So they're uh, active. So they hopefully can exercise. So I would choose an exercise modality. In the U.S., uh, most of the time, the exercise modality although declining over time because of the epidemic of morbid obesity and aging, it's still uh, treadmill in uh, Europe and other places they use supine or bikes, regular bikes for exercise. So that's the first modality. The second issue is the tracer. And this is where I think we need a major revolution in nuclear cardiology. So traditionally, most labs have SPECT imaging. Uh, SPECT cameras in their current forms have existed probably since the mid-70s, 1970s, because you guys are probably were not born back then. Uh, slight evolution over time with these cameras, uh, with different adaptations and different filters, different formulations, but in general, it, seemed, it remained the same. Versus PET imaging, which is uh, considered modern, but actually it's not that modern. It's been probably around for about two decades right now for cardiac adaptation plus, maybe three decades even. Uh, so if, if you're in a practice that has SPECT imaging, I think that's, that would be the, the way to go. And then we talk about SPECT imaging as not only as a camera, but also at what kind of camera you have and how this camera should be utilized in 2020. So I think personally, and I'm going to get probably a lot of heat from the community for it, the SPECT camera that should, you should use right now should have a CT scanner for attenuation correction. I think in the modern era, any use of spec cameras without attenuation correction is a disservice for the patient, a disservice for the physician, the referring physician, and will very often lead to extremely low specificity in the range of 50 to 60%. This is published data, so we don't have to argue a lot about it. Uh, so if you, I tell you I'm going to send you to have a stress test with 50 to 60% uh, specificity, none of you will order it on their parent or their older brother or sister. Uh, so that's extremely important. And if you have access to a PET camera, that's the way to go. Now, as far as, as the PET, the traditional PET, at least in the United States, that's being performed right now is predominantly pharmacologic because of the access to rubidium. And we'll talk about that in details later. There are some centers, including yours, that use ammonia. And with that, you can use treadmill. But in general, PET has a much, much better sensitivity, much better specificity, much better accuracy for diagnosing 50% and 70% stenosis, and also more confidence from the interpreter. So when the person interpreting the test is faced with a SPECT or a PET, they always would choose a PET because of that confidence, high confidence in it. 
The information you get from these uh, systems is evolving also. So we started with perfusion when these things were introduced. So this basically tells you about blood flow to the myocardium. And then it uh, moved on to ejection fraction, which was introduced in the late 80s, early 90s, which we do at rest and stress, most centers. And now with the introduction of, of PET quantitative imaging, this is uh, something that almost every PET scanner, modern PET scanner should be able to offer you beyond the uh, semi-quantitative visual interpretation of perfusion, where you get quantification of perfusion in all three coronary territories, uh, at rest and post-rest. And it has been shown to have incremental prognostic value. So then we can talk about the role of prognostication. Prognostication is, is not static again. So most of the data we have about the value of nuclear stress testing for prognosis that is presented in the literature or at conferences come from data from the late 80s, early 90s. And even if published in the early 2000s, it reflects population over the late 90s. The criticism our community faces with that is that these are patients who were enrolled before modern therapy, meaning before widespread introduction of aspirin, statins, ACE inhibitors, and aggressive control of diabetes. It was introduced in an era where predominantly the population was male. And finally, it was introduced in an era where predominantly most of the stress testing was a treadmill. Fast forward to 2020, we have fantastic aggressive medical therapy that works very well. Most of the population we're stressing is different than the population that we did in the, or at least published on in the 90s, at least by uh, it's older, by about an average 7 to 10 years. We have more females in it. We have more adherence to aggressive medical therapy, and we have more pharmacological stress testing. Over the next probably uh, period uh, we're doing here, we'll talk about how we fine-tune this. Thanks, Hefe. This is incredible. I feel like I'm watching another awesome talk from Cardiac Imaging Agora. And for the audience, I can't stress enough the differences between the quality for PET imaging, SPECT imaging, and the utility of attenuation correction. And, you know, I, I learned this from Hefe back. Actually, my very first rotation in cardiology fellowship was nuclear imaging. And it was just incredible. As a first week fellow, I felt like I could almost tell the differences in perfusion defects in PET imaging, but SPECT was uh, still quite challenging. And of course, for the audience, we use nuclear tracers and inject them into the patient. They percolate throughout the myocardium and give off a signal that's acquired and reconstructed. And based on that, we get an image of you know overall perfusion. And we see what happens at rest, at stress. And we know, is there no defect or reversible defect or a fixed defect? And, and I remember when I think my sensitivity was very high and my specificity was very low, I was calling defects on the SPECT imaging all the time. And that's when Hefik introduced the notion of attenuation correction, because without attenuation correction, you can imagine as the signal passes through soft tissue, whether it's the diaphragm or breast tissue, the signal will get attenuated, which is going to have less signal getting to the image acquisition. And so it'll look like a defect. But when you have attenuation correction, now you can see that actually it's okay. And I was surprised to know how many labs actually don't have built-in attenuation correction. And of course, PET imaging has has that feature essentially built in based on the physics. Is that, is that all fair, Hefe? Absolutely, Ahmed. Two, two or three things just to add on to this. So when our fellows uh, come to rotate in our lab, we, we tell them what to expect and what, especially what to expect here and what to expect when they go out in the community. So uh, at least at our institution for the past over, I would think, 12 years plus, uh, we do attenuation correction on all our specs. So every single spec stress test done at the Cleveland Clinic is done with attenuation correction. And that gets you around most of the artifacts. So 
if you want to be funny about it, reading a cardiac spec is basically reading around the artifacts. If you know how to interpret all the artifacts, then your specificity will improve. And as a fellow or a person trying to start reading these things, it is extremely important to be in the high sensitivity more than the high specificity. And then when you're reading with your attending or with your mentor in the rotation, those are the people who should walk you through reading around the artifacts. So attenuation correction with CT, and that's how at least I, I do it. I'm a very simplistic person in looking at these things. Amit, you said that we have tissue, whether it's breast or diaphragm or whatever it is, or soft tissue just from being obese, that attenuates the signal coming from the heart to the camera. And that's unfortunately is not uniform. So that's uh, heterogeneous. So in females, it tends to be more breast and males tends to be uh, more diaphragm. The attenuation correction, just simply basically the CT localizes where the image is coming from and how deep it is in the chest and corrects the signal by a factor of depth. So what you get at the end uh, is a signal that is adjusted, almost like grading you on a curve in college for your grade. So basically, it just inflates the signals, let's say, from the inferior wall in males because of diaphragm attenuation and the anterior walls for females. And therefore, you will see those walls as bright and as at least signal intense as the rest of the walls. So that's how it gets around that. Now, for PET, all PET systems have built-in attenuation correction. So you will never have a PET without attenuation correction. Uh, Whether in the old system that was a, a single source attenuation correction, like gallium, that rotates around the patient, or any modern system, and by me, my modern, the past 15 years, uh, will have a CT built in. So the CT will give you that information. So these are just the nuances of how we uh, look at these systems differently. Now, in addition to that, the tracers for each of these systems are different. So for a PET system, the traditional tracer we talked about is usually uh, rubidium, which has an energy of 510 keVs. Compared to, let's say, a system that uses thallium, a spec system, which 68 keVs. So as you can see, the, the higher the uh, keVs, the better the image quality you're going to get. And then you move to what we use traditionally, which is uh, in spec system, technician-based agents, and those have 144 keV. So they are much better than thallium. I think in the modern era, and that modern era extends to basically that early 2000s to now, I don't think it is fair to use thallium in any patient uh, because of the low energy, the longer half-life for these agents, very long half-life, and the poor image quality. So in a modern era, you should be using technetium for specs and rubidium or ammonia for perfusion for PET. One thing that I think is, is also important to mention, and I agree that the attenuation correction really uh, improves your specificity and, and overall certainty of, of the diagnosis when you're looking at this nuclear perfusion scan. But in addition to that, you get the added value of uh, evaluating the, the presence of calcium score. And you can do that in a qualitative way, just trying to determine if it's mild, moderate, or severe in low quality uh, CT scan that you do for attenuation, or you can perhaps do a formal calcium score and and quantify it. And that really adds uh, a lot to the interpretation of the study because now you have calcium that can tell you that the patient does have disease. And and as we know, the burden of disease in terms of presence of calcium is a very important factor in terms of predicting risk for our patient. And we can initiate therapies depending on the findings. Here, again, we are believers, and since we're doing the CT on these patients, and by the way, we do CT only for the stress images because these are the most important images. So we do the CT, and we have gained a few things from the CT. 
Uh, the first thing, as you said, is the calcium. So a person with uh, normal perfusion images, meaning normal perfusion at rest and stress and normal ejection fraction. Traditionally, in the past, we used to send these patients and say it's a normal study and everybody will celebrate and, and the treatment of the patient will almost stop there. Whereas now, as, as Aldo said, if you have a CT that is being done anyway for attenuation correction, I think it's uh, imperative that you look at the CT and decide if this patient uh, has calcium because that can change the management. So a 53-year-old uh, female who has a normal nuclear stress test without calcium is totally different than a 53-year-old female with a nuclear stress test that has calcium on the CT. And calcium is a, probably an impetus for starting aggressive medical therapy. So you can actually show these patients what they have already as far as a plaque buildup in their coronaries and then convince them maybe it's good to know and it's good psychologically to use with the patient to uh, emphasize the importance of starting aggressive primary prevention. Maybe when you have calcium, it's secondary prevention. That's still debatable. Yeah, this is an incredible discussion. And we know that for the CAC score, which may be a little bit different from the, the qualitative look we get for calcium and specs, showing patients the disease does improve their adherence to preventive medication. And I realize my own test characteristics are still improving, but they get much better when I'm looking at PET imaging and I'm looking at it with somebody like Hefe or Aldo, but that'll continue to get better. Erica, you're working on this fascinating review on the various roles of nuclear cardiology imaging in the ICU patient. Naturally, coronary disease accounts for a lot of CICU patients, and some may be on mechanical circulatory support devices for ischemia shock or mechanical complications in the unit. We see this all the time. How would you even begin to approach a rest-stress PET for a patient on, say, an intraaortic balloon pump? Yes, Amit, that's a great question. And I'm actually collaborating with Aldo, who's the first author in this paper, which is already submitted looking into the use of nuclear imaging in the cardiac ICU setting. And the point that you bring up was actually answered by the ingenious mind of El Jefe, who designed a rest stress pet protocol for patients on intra-aortic balloon pump. So as you know, intra-aortic balloon pump is able to provide cardiac support either by EKG-triggered augmentation of the balloon or by volume of augmentation. We tend to use it by EKG triggered, meaning that we choose if we want to inflate the balloon every beat or every other beat or every third beat. And as you can imagine, if you turn down the support of a patient on an intraoperative balloon pump from one to one to one to three suddenly, then you would result in sudden rise in afterload and stress the heart acutely. So this can simulate exercise meaning you can obtain images during one to three support after injecting the tracer on one to three support and compare those images to rest images, in this case, one to one support. So that's the intraoperative balloon pump protocol that Dr. Jaber came up with. And in this paper, we show a very interesting case where it was actually able to change management. Wow, that's really incredible. So, you know, just thinking about how the balloon pump works during diastole, the balloon pump contracts and increases coronary perfusion pressure. And during systole, the balloon pump deflates, decreasing the afterload or the work the heart has to do. And so essentially, as the balloon pump is uh, working in sync with the heart uh, at one-to-one, -one, uh, with every beat, the balloon pump goes through its own cycle, and it optimizes the supply-demand mismatch to decrease ischemia. So essentially, Erica, what you're doing is you're going from one-to-one to one-to-three, one such that the balloon pump only works with every third cardiac beat. And so that supply-demand optimization is less. So effectively, that's the stress state. Really fascinating stuff. Very cool. 
Yeah, it's, it's just this is actually an idea that we came up with Dr. Menon, a very, you know, your program director and a very good colleague of mine, and he's always much smarter than me. So he was uh, rounding in the ICU, in the cardiac ICU, and he's the director of our cardiac ICU. This is, I think, 14 years ago plus. So he had a patient on a balloon pump, and the patient was considered for revascularization, and uh, the surgeon wanted to take the patient to uh, surgery, but he didn't know if this patient has, because we didn't have much history on this patient besides his coronary disease, whether there was a primary cardiomyopathy or there is an ischemic component to his disease. There was some information coming before that he had a weak heart when he was in his 30s. So what we did, we said, okay, we have a theoretical concept here that you guys went through, which is a balloon pump is meant to augment perfusion in diastole, where we assume most of the perfusion of the myocardium happens. This is a diastolic inflation of the balloon. It augments diastolic perfusion of the coronary arteries. There is some afterload reduction issues uh, related to that, but that's uh, the whole concept. So we said, how do we stress these patients? So I sat down with Veno and we, we thought about it and we said, okay, resting state, which is basically what you come with, is full support one-to-one. Uh, so let's image those patients at full support. So we were down in the old building, actually, before we moved to our new hospital. And of course, the nurses were completely uh, scared of this. Our nuclear medicine colleagues walked out of the building. They were thinking that we're doing something uh, crazy. So <laughs> we took the patient, put them in the PET, uh, the patient put them in the PET scanner. We uh, injected the tracer. And uh, by the way, those two of you who don't do PET, PET is extremely fast. So you can do a full PET rest stress study within anywhere 20, 25 minutes uh, total. So uh, we put the patient in the PET machine. We one-to-one support. We have the images. We can review them right online within minutes. Uh, we can review the images. The patient was still in the PET machine. So Veno and I said, okay, what's stress for this patient? So stress is partial support. Uh, so we went from one-to-one to three-to-one. Uh, three so we have every third beat is only supported. And we injected the patient again with uh, rubidium. And we imaged, and what we saw is basically physiologic impact of the balloon pump, where at full support, there was almost no ischemia, the entire myocardium was perfused, and at partial support, we had a tremendous amount of ischemia. So now we know, first, that the patient is very ischemic, and two, that the balloon pump is working. So we all celebrated and were happy. And we've done dozens of cases since then, actually, one of them was published. And just to talk about the physiologic uh, demonstration of the impact of balloon pump in a patient with ischemic cardiomyopathy. So that's how this whole thing came. This was kind of actually a brilliant idea. And and when you think about it, not only about how it works, but if you think about the patient that you're dealing with, it's a patient that has a balloon pump, uh, maybe a patient that is intubated, patient that often has uh, kidney disease, that is, it's going to be very hard for this patient to cooperate. So when you look at all the different modalities that you have at your disposal, I think the only one that can provide good imaging without necessarily causing any harm to the patient would be the strategy with, with nuclear imaging. Because if you think about it, for echo in a patient who has ischemic heart disease and probably has a, an acute event, you don't want to necessarily do the butamine and create more injury, more ischemia. So that's out of the equation. The second thing is you need the patient to cooperate with you if you're going to bring the patient to the CT scanner. And anyhow, this patient is not a good candidate given that probably has disease. So CT is not great there. And, and MR, you need a lot of cooperation. It's a long study. And you need to have compatibility with the devices. So, so that's also out of the equation. So what you ended up with is just having the nuclear technique. And that's the whole interest that we have in trying to incorporate more and more nuclear technology to the CCU. 
The other entities that we have been working on in the ICU, uh, do you mind just telling us about other diseases that beyond ischemic heart disease, of course, uh, which is the bread and butter of most places, other disease entities where you will find a role for uh, a PET imaging or even uh, SPECT imaging for non-ischemic things? Absolutely, Hefe. I think often we encounter in the unit patients coming with uh, ventricular tachycardia, which are unexplained etiology. And, and rather than just going and, and going for an ablation or just putting an ICD, you have to understand a little bit better why the patient is having the VT. And, and, and uh, sarcoidosis is a, a disease that uh, is known to cause the VT. And, and, and then doing nuclear imaging with both perfusion and FTG, you can try to identify if, if that's the process that is, is causing the patient VT and has important and therapeutic implications. Another disease process that we often see in the unit, and, and you know, we always talk about cardiac amyloidosis more as an outpatient process, but often they get very sick and get down to the unit and trying to identify those, let's say, patients with ATTR amyloidosis, I think it's important trying to identify what the, what's driving the compensation or, in some cases, the cardiac shock. And the other end of the spectrum it's, not, it's often that we see those people with prosthetic valves that come in with fever and bacteremia, and, and the diagnosis of endocarditis is a little uncertain. And PET, um, FTG, and, and whole body WCs can be of help in trying to increase your certainty if this patient indeed has a prosthetic infective endocarditis. In a little bit of a, it's not as often as we see these in the unit, but sometimes we, we get this patient with acute chest pain that there's concern for acute orthopathies and, and you see this thick aorta and you're kind of wondering if this patient have an intramural hematoma or not, but then in, in the differential. Uh, you also need to include our titis. And in selected patients, you can send this patient for FTG uh, imaging to try to identify if this is more like an inflammatory process rather than a kind of a surgical entity. Perfect, perfect. This is actually, although I was like thinking about, like amazing, what, a year and a half? You still follow exactly, <laughs> you know, the logic we have in, in approaching these. Actually, the last entity you talked about is actually just had a patient right now I'm on hospital service. And we have a patient right now with, who came with uh, acute aortic syndrome and uh, she had a PET FTG done and we think she has Takaya. So we started our prednisone with consultation with our rheumatology colleagues. And again, fascinating how the entire, this is a young lady in her 50s, the entire aorta just lit up from the uh, carotids all the way down to, uh, to her abdominal aorta. Wow, that's impressive, Dr. Jaber. I got to say, nuclear imaging is becoming one of my favorite imaging modalities. It's not only very easy to use, especially in, in critical ill patients like Aldo explained. You can get very fast acquisitions, no need for patient cooperation, independent of renal and, and hepatic function. But aside of the critical ill patients, how do you choose between all of these stress modalities, nuclear versus echo versus CMR versus CTA? What is your approach to selecting the best non-invasive study to assessing, in this case, ischemia? So, Erica, that question that you are presenting is a very difficult one, but it's one that we often face on daily practice and when we're trying to choose a modality to evaluate our patients. And, and let me start saying that no single imaging modality is, is optimal for all patients, but you should rather adjust your strategy and, and use the tool that you have at your disposal to analyze the patient that you have in front of you in a patient-centered imaging. So the questions that I try to answer when I'm trying to select a modality 
namely stress echo, stress MR, coronary CTA, stress CMR, is that what's the clinical question that I'm trying to answer? And that can be, is my patient having symptoms because of ischemic heart disease? Is the patient having ischemia when he exercises? And that's different from, is my patient having uh, obstructive epicardial coronary disease? Is my patient having microvascular dysfunction? And, and as you can see, depending on the question that you're asking, there might be a better modality for it. And let's say if you're trying to identify the nature of the symptoms, then maybe functional uh, uh, would be better. Well, if you're trying to rule out uh, obstructive epicardial disease, uh, perhaps anatomical is the way to go. The second thing that I ask myself is what I call imaging factors. So the first thing is, is my patient have any prior imaging? So uh, we often see in practice that, you know, we see these relatively young patients coming with this kind of chest discomfort that is, is hard to pinpoint. And, and this is going to be the third stress nuclear that the patient is going to have. So if you go back that the patient is getting the same test over and over again, maybe switching to a different approach and using an anatomical mode might be the, the, the way to go the other way around. You're trying to choose a modality that can, in an accurate way, but also cost-effectively can answer the question or the multiple questions that you might have, and, and that's important. You're trying to choose a modality that exposes the patient to the least amount of radiation, if you can. And it all comes down to accessibility and, and local expertise as well from an imaging perspective. So what do you have available and, and what's the expertise at your center? Last but not least, I think, you know, in, in times of COVID, I think you need to be mindful of the exposure that the imaging team is going to get. So in, in those patients with their positive for COVID or a risk and, and it qualify for a coronary CTA, that, that would be the way to go as it really minimizes the exposure that the teams get, maybe followed by PET. And then I think the, probably the most exposure you're going to get with the exercise echo. So the, the last question I think that you have to sort out is, is what kind of comorbidities your patient have? Is a patient that is young and then maybe you're trying to save radiation? Is the patient acutely ill, as we just discussed, and, and you're trying to use a, a modality that requires minimal cooperation? Uh, again, looking at kidney disease, liver disease, can I give the contrast to those patients? Do my patient have any particular devices and, and so forth? And, and then finally, I think having in mind and, and really estimating the likelihood of uh, obstructive CAD is, is a, a crucial point in your decision. So once you have that, then you can use the spectrum of, of uh, pretest likelihood of disease. And you're going to say, in one stand to the left, I have patients with very low pretest probability, while on the, on the far, I have a very high. You can make an argument that in those people with very low pretest probability, maybe the testing might not be necessary. Or maybe if you want to do something, then you can perhaps do an ETT. On the other way, a very high probability, then probably more invasive strategies would be, would be uh, the way to go. For the vast majority in the middle, I think if you're kind of low intermediate pretest probability of, of having obstructive disease, an anatomical testing might be the way to go. And the reason behind that is that, as we saw from the Scott Hart trial, if you use coronary CTA on top of standard of care, and in most of the scenarios, ETT was used, we were able to increase this, the certainty of the diagnosis in the presence of CAD, but at the same time, because you're now detecting non-obstructive plaque. So in this patient population, it's not enough to say you don't have obstructive disease. I think it's important to say you don't have obstructive disease with high degree of certainty, but at the same time, it's important to recognize that plaque that already exists that is not obstructing at this point, but you, need, you can do something about it and you can initiate uh, preventive therapies. And, and that's the value of the current CTA and anatomical testing in those low to intermediate pretest probability patients. 
the downside of the current CTAs is that as you go up in the degree of stenosis, then it's hard to determine which of those are actually significant. You have a stenosis of 50%, but it's long, or you have a stenosis of 70%. You know, is, is that significant? Is that causing the symptoms for my patient? It's a little, in occasion, it's uncertain, you know, unless you have a, you know, a 90% stenosis, which is very clear that's causing a problem. So in the other end of the spectrum, and as your pretest uh, likelihood of obstructive disease goes up, or perhaps you already have disease and stenting and bypass and so forth, and your patient comes with uh, symptoms, functional uh, strategy is probably favor. And, and you have, you know, stress MR, you have a stress nuclear, perhaps a stress echo in more in like, in like a low intermediate kind of group in a very selected group of patients that doesn't have necessarily wall motion and stuff like that that can preclude your assessment. But I think for the most part, a stress nuclear and a stress CMR is probably the way to go in those patients. I think the downside of that strategy, especially in those people that does not have disease or established disease, then you might miss those kind of non-obstructive plaque. And, and, and going back to our discussion about the CASM score, uh, at least on the nuclear side of things, getting that CASM score is, is very important uh, to try to identify that. But we're talking about the first strategy. We're talking about what's my first test when I'm facing with that question uh, and I have all these different modalities. But it, it, often these modalities can be uh, complementary to each other. For instance, the case of a coronary CTA, you ended up having a stenosis of 60, uh, 70%. And you don't know if the symptoms are coming from that or not. That might be not significant if it's 60%. So then you can complement that with the functional testing and see if this is truly significant or not. You can have other techniques with CT, a CTFFR or CT perfusion. They can also answer that within the realm of CT. But often in clinical practice, clinicians refer to a functional test to complement. The other way around is also true. You have a patient who comes in with some symptoms and story that is sounds real. You stress the patient exercise and, and has some symptoms, but then no significant ECG changes. And maybe the perfusion images on nuclear are not definitive. And you're still bothered by the symptoms that the patient had during exercise. So you can always refer that patient if it's appropriate to a coronary CTA to really exclude a significant disease. And in my uh, practice, we often see that some of those patients might have actually a structural disease. You can, make a ch- you can make a difference by initiation of therapies. Eldo, thank you so much for that. And I love what you said about really tailoring your approach to the patient and personalizing the imaging based on their symptoms, the clinical context, and just the local availability. That makes a lot of sense. And speaking of the clinical context, let's consider the patient with stable angina. Hefe, how do the results of the ischemia trial fit in with your practice in evaluating patients with stable angina and, say, maybe refractory symptoms? So actually, the ischemia trial results are probably address some of the issues that uh, Aldo raised. But to go from the uh, macro to the micro, so you, I mean, we go see patients in clinic together uh, every Friday, and Aldo, you've had that experience. One of the most difficult situations, so we can talk about trials, we can talk about population studies, we can talk about uh, other things. But one of the most difficult situations I face as a person who practices cardiology, in addition to read, a person who reads echo, stress, echo, stress, nuclear, pets, all these things, is a patient coming to me with uh, chest pain, let's call it syndrome, whether it's discomfort, whether it's, uh, they, they rarely tell you I have chest pain, it's mostly discomfort. I have to face that patient, unlike in a clinical trial where you don't have to face that patient after the trial is done. You and I, or Aldo or Erica, we have to go and meet this patient after the results of the test. Whether it's negative or positive, showing abnormality or not, we have to go to the next step. So if I have a patient who's still having chest pain, 
after I've told them that your stress test is normal. Actually, this is these are the most difficult situations because now I not only I have used the card I have to get the diagnosis, two, they're still going to have chest pain and I have to resolve the problem. People don't come to you rarely these days, except if they're Googling a lot. They don't come to you and tell you to have obstructive CAD or not. They come to you with a symptom, and that's the difficulty. So therefore, we move to the ischemia trial to answer that question. So ischemia trial, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know how to put it yet, because remember what happened with the ischemia trial is that everything is about timing. So the ischemia trial was unfortunate as far as the trial in terms of, one, the results were announced right around the time when the pandemic started hitting us. And it was all consumed with that tornado of the pandemic. And we didn't have time to adjust and see the impact. So if you, let's say, you you accept the results of the ischemia trial on face value and you say, okay, these are practice-changing results, you will never be able to detect that right now, at least in the U.S. or in Europe or anywhere in the world, because we were hit with the pandemic in 2020. So whatever we see right now, as far as the frequency of ordering CTs or SPECTs or PETs or stress echoes or whatever it is, or the way we practice cardiology, is all distorted by this huge black hole, which is the, the pandemic that's going on around. So to assess it objectively, how it affected the community or how it affected the practice of cardiology or impacted it, it's going to be extremely difficult. And we're going to come out of this era of, of COVID uh, and cardiology is going to change for many reasons. The practice of medicine is going to change for many, many reasons. It's going to be hard to assess whether ischemia impacted that or not. Now, to go back to the trial itself, just remember the ischemia trial was a, a anatomy first trial, right? So all these patients uh, had a, an anatomic test to start with. So they had a CT, right, to rule out uh, left main disease or left main equivalent disease. So this is the first thing. So that's not the way uh, we practice, at least right now. Maybe that's the way we should practice. I don't know. For people with no prior history of ischemic heart disease, maybe that's, maybe. I'm not saying I disagree with that strategy, but that's not, way, that's not the way cardiology is being practiced right now. Then the ischemia trial had a very hard problem enrolling patients over time. So the definition of what a stress test is or what type of modality of stress testing and the a geographic inclusion of patients expanded over time. So instead of being a very clean trial to answer a very specific question, it ended up being a hodgepodge of practice from different parts of the world. And therefore, none of us, at least in imaging, and I'm very, really try to be as objective as I can, and I have tremendous respect for Dr. Hockman. Uh, she trained me and she knows about this field more than any of us. It's just the way they were forced to conduct a trial because of low enrollment. The trial ended up being a treatment strategy trial with anatomic testing first, rather than a, a pure imaging trial. And therefore, it's like a, a bunch of blind people looking at an elephant. Everybody wants to see whatever they want to see. They have their feel of it. So some people say CT is great from the ischemia trial. Some people say, oh, nuclear is amazing. Some people say, just medical therapy is wonderful. The jury is out and it's going to be out, unfortunately, for ischemia, which I know a lot of effort went to it, a lot of money went into it from the NIH. It's, uh, it's going to be modeled by the fact, the way the trial was conducted and the impact of the pandemic. So it seems like we have a, a, a huge deal of clinical guidelines for disease, including acute coronary syndrome, chronic coronary syndrome, 
valvular heart disease. But as you said, patients don't come with a diagnosis, they come with symptoms. Are there any plans on updating these guidelines in keeping with the findings of the ischemia trial to just help us get better risk stratification tools? Erica, so you ask really a very extremely important question, which is, what do we deal with in cardiology, mostly in, in the entire world right now? It used to be valvular and rheumatic heart disease in developing countries and obstructive coronary disease in developed countries or in the Western-style countries. Now we all deal with coronary disease as the main thing. And as you said, the, the people come with symptoms. And the ACC, they've never had a uh, guideline specific for the chest pain syndrome. This is contrary to what's been going on uh, across the uh, the pond, across the Atlantic, where the the UK, the NICE uh, guideline for dealing with chest pain, the most updated one came back, came out in 2016. And the European Society of Cardiology came with guideline for stable coronary syndrome, which includes that group of patients with chest pain syndrome, uh, I think back last year or the year before. Uh, there is a plan for a chest pain guideline in the U.S. It is in, in process. It's, it started about maybe three, three and a half years ago. I cannot say more about it because I'm on the uh, guideline uh, committee for that purpose, representing uh, the American Society of uh, Echocardiography. The, the difficulty in, in these guidelines is the following. First, this is one of the first guidelines, the ACC AHA comes from the ACNHA with a specific symptom. So the guidelines are for ST elevation MI, non-ST elevation MI, aortic dissection, mitral stenosis, valvular heart disease. None of these guidelines have in their title a symptom, right? Now you're going to go and put a chest pain guidelines document. And the first, the second difficulty is what is chest pain? Uh, and that I can tell you from the deliberation of the guideline committee, we spent hours and days and probably months debating how to describe chest pain. Is it the traditional chest pain in old movies where the guy is running to the bus, Dr. Zhivago style, uh, putting the, his fist in the front of his chest and collapsing before catching the train? Or is it the non-specific symptoms that most of our female population comes with, which is, oh, I have some discomfort, GI uh, symptoms, uh, indigestion, it feels weird. So... That is the difficulty of it. Then the other difficulty is how the medical practice is evolving as we're writing the guidelines. So the chest pain guideline committee was formed. There were no high sensitivity troponins, or they were very early in the process. We didn't have a lot of data on that. And these came out, and there was a huge revolution in the way we approach patients right now, specifically in the emergency department with high sensitivity troponins. So this plethora of data had to be digested and incorporated in the guidelines. Uh, so that's that. Then you have a couple of CT trials that came out during that process. And as you're working on the guidelines, they have to be updated for that. Then you have the ischemia trial that comes up. And I think the most difficult thing for me to accept as an imager, being the biased person I am towards imaging, is it is very hard and it's probably impossible to prove the value of imaging in the acute setting in the emergency department after the patient has ruled out with a series, you can disagree or agree on two or three high sensitivity troponins, meaning being negative, and with aggressive medical therapy, appropriate guideline-guided medical therapy, which is basically statins, aspirin, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers when appropriate, and all these things, and diabetes management, of course. So how do you show that you have an imaging modality 
that's incrementally going to change this. And incrementally, what we mean here is, unlike when you start, let's say you want to start talk about the value of statins, you take two groups of people and you show impact on outcomes, right? With imaging, the endpoint is not only outcomes, which is extremely difficult to prove, it's also diagnostic accuracy. So how do you do that? And these are the challenges. And if you guys being young will solve these things for us in the future. Thank you so much, Hefe. And I appreciate how you contextualize this conversation, that this is one of the most important sources of grief that we are seeing worldwide now. Very much looking forward to these guidelines. And I'm also reminded of, I think, probably the most important Jack review I've read in recent time by one of the Cardinals team members, Rick Ferraro, on the approach to stable angina, where he uh, raised a lot of the similar concerns and you know the issue of the importance of really focusing on the preventive strategies that are going to become more and more important in uh, addressing this pandemic means different things now, but really this global pandemic of coronary atherosclerotic disease. So one of the things that being an imager myself, of course, you're concerned about your field, but you're always concerned about the welfare of, of, of the patient and society, is I always remind myself of an interview uh, that was uh, done 20, 30 years ago, I think, with the Saudi uh, oil minister. And this is in the context of what we're talking about right now, which is we have great medical therapy, right, which saves lives every single day, produces events every single day. And then we have great technology. So they asked the Saudi oil minister, uh, he was trying, you know, Saudi Arabia is not only rich in oil, but also uh, rich in uh, sun. It's in the desert and they have 350 days of sun every year. So he was trying to pivot his country to adopt some solar uh, energy to compensate for potential future decline in oil. And uh, he got a lot of pushback from his countrymen. And his thing that I remember clearly from that in his statement, he said, you know, the Stone Age did not end because they ran out of stones. The Stone Age ended because they figured out newer technologies. And again, the same thing we have. We have all these stones in our hands right now, whether it's PET, whether it's SPECT, whether it's ECHO, whether it's CT. But remember, this is the whatever the future is will be. We will look backward and we'll think about what, the way we do things right now is the Stone Age and whatever age comes in the future. So just keep yourself honest. You're an expert in a field, but the way humanity progresses is by uh, new things coming up and eliminating old practices and old things and be uh, willing to accept that. Wow. What uh, words of advice, Hefe, and for the audience, you just got a glimpse of the types of conversations that Hefe has had with myself, Aldo, and other fellows. Thank you so much, Hefe, and, and thank you, Aldo and Erica. Folks, this brings us to the end of part one, but definitely tune in for subsequent parts where we continue our tour de force overview of the variety of clinical situations uh, where we can use nuclear and complementary cardiac imaging. And I, and I have to tell you why we're uh, closing out this recording at this point and, and we're going to reschedule. It, you know, Hefe for us has been a role model in so many different scenarios, you know, how to be a good cardiologist, how to approach your patient, how to be a good person to your colleagues and coworkers but also work-life integration, prioritizing family time, self-care. And he said, guys, I'm really enjoying this conversation, uh, but maybe let's reschedule for another time because I promised myself a two-hour run on this crisp snow laden Saturday afternoon here in Cleveland, Ohio. So uh, have a great run, Dr. Jaber. Thank you so much. You're too kind again. And uh, again, remember whenever you're going to do this for the long haul for the next 40 years of your life plus, 
uh, try to pay yourself uh, every day with something good, which is try to be as good to your health and family as you are to your colleagues and patients. And thank you so much, all. Thanks, Aldo. Thanks, Erica. Thank you. Thank you. This is great. Thank you. This is great. Wow, that was a fascinating discussion about multimodality imaging to investigate coronary ischemia. Stay tuned for the next episode where we discuss microvascular dysfunction. I think we lost Aldo. That or Erica, your introduction was so warm. <laughs> crying. Do you guys, do you guys hear me now? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? This Lord. is like crazy. Okay, let's start. I, I was talking by myself. <laughs> oh. <laughs>